Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. I thought about motherhood being unrecognized, uncelebrated, and said, I'm going to do something to change that. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. It's a great pleasure today to welcome Anna Malika Tubbs to the Good Company session. Anna, it's a privilege to get to know you. I've had the good fortune, as you know, of getting to know Michael. And in fact, you're the first duo to join me on Good Company. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's good history for us to make. There's been some other records we've broken, but this is the most important one. (laughs) Absolutely. Anna, there's so many things that I want to talk about with you based on your experience whether it's your your upbringing, living in Dubai. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that? I just think that's going to be so interesting for our audience. Let me make sure I get it right. Dubai, Mexico, Sweden, Estonia, and Azerbaijan. I mean, you know, <laughs> talk about here, there, and everywhere. It was an incredible privilege. I absolutely loved growing up in this nomadic way. Both of my parents wanted to give us the privilege of seeing the world firsthand, really learning for ourselves um, about different cultures, different experiences. I grew up knowing that there wasn't only one truth in the world. There were multiple ways of living and loving and believing. So everywhere that we lived, it was just a new exposure to that. And especially the ways in which we all tell stories differently, depending on our backgrounds and our experiences. And so that definitely informed me as a storyteller. So we lived in Dubai for four years, uh, Estonia for one year, Sweden for a few months, Mexico for four years, Azerbaijan. And then in between, we would always go back and forth to Ghana. My dad is Ghanaian. So I also had that exposure as well, which was so important for me to see the continent for myself, to see this country for myself. And then we also traveled a lot around the United States. So it definitely made me who I am. I'm someone who really appreciates difference, recognizes it, and really celebrates it. I think there's a strength. The more we can include different people and different experiences, the stronger we can be, not only as companies or teams, but even families and nations as a whole. Well, what I would say is, whoa, because you've certainly struck a vein with me. I've been a believer in that. You know, my wife and I were accused when our kids were young, people who didn't know looked from the outside in and said, well, you spoiled your kids. And I've always defended that by saying, no, we didn't. We indulged our children. We didn't spoil them. But it sounds like your parents indulged you in ways that the world could be envious of to have life experiences of that sort. And again, it's part of understanding what we're dealing with wherever we are, whoever the we is, if you look at it against the backdrop of history or other cultures or other people experiencing, because I think problems are, are uniform and international. They're localized. It's like marketing. You can have a marketing message that's global, but it has to be tweaked for the local nuance, the life experience of the local nuance, there's a lot in that local nuance, obviously, culturally, 
economically, spiritually, all the lees come into play there. But my God, how that prepared you for your journey is extraordinary. Let's talk about your journey a bit, Anna. Your CV speaks volumes, but what I wanted to focus on today was something that's near and dear to my heart. I grew up with a very strong Jewish mother, stereotypical in the best of all ways, but my mother had a unique approach. Her unique approach was she was a stereotypical Jewish mother, whatever that means, and we all kind of have our own interpretation of that, but she was also a successful and strong businesswoman. Mm. So I had the privilege of watching my mother use one part of her personality, which was that the great utilizer of Jewish guilt, on the one hand, as a strong tool, not as a negative, but as a positive, but also combining her business experience and her her business sense. So I watched that. So I've always been very comfortable and grew up in that environment. But the book that you've just completed, I think, which was released in February, so so fresh, about three mothers. I just love the title that caught my attention. But you've chosen, and which I think is so interesting, to focus on three particular mothers who are symbolic of an actual, not just symbolic, but actually three very famous Black mothers who their children were also pretty well known, (laughs) Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. So you got to give me the why first. I think it's obvious, but I'd love to hear it. And let's go. I was never a mama's boy, but I always understood the potential and positive impact that my mother had on my life. So I'm, I'm so curious to listen to your story and the lens through which you wrote this book. And I think that's crucial. Even though you said you weren't a mama's boy, but you understood her contributions in your life. That is already very advanced. I would say many of us do not acknowledge our mother's role. It's definitely taken for granted. It's a role in our society that's unrecognized, unthanked, really just something that deserves much more credit. So kudos to you for already acknowledging that. And I would say with these three mothers, really, they aren't famous yet, but I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to make it so that everybody knows their stories, everybody knows their names, and everybody acknowledges who they were even long before they thought of having these sons and how their motherhood was a growth of their identity. They were already activists, very passionate, writers, creative. They were giving life in so many ways, and they translated those experiences into what they taught their sons. So the three mothers who I speak about are Alberta King, Bertus Baldwin, and Louise Little, the mothers of MLK Jr., James Baldwin, and Malcolm X, respectively. And in the book, I explore their lives. Each chapter is about a 10-year period in American history. All of the mothers were born within six years of each other. Their sons were born within five years of each other. So that presented some very cool intersections. And the reason I chose them, I started my PhD knowing I wanted to address the erasure of Black women's stories. I was really inspired by Margot Lee Shetterly's Hidden Figures. And for those who haven't read the book, they've most likely heard of the movie, which is so important and changed for many of us, not only the way we understood a crucial moment in history, but also how we see ourselves as a nation today, where we're questioning why certain stories are being kept from us very intentionally. This wasn't a mistake for us to not know that Black women were behind the space launch. So I I wanted to find more hidden figures. That was my goal. I had a lot of options that left a huge landscape open. Unfortunately, many Black women's contributions are forgotten 
hidden, intentionally erased. So I started to think of the layers that I could break down of erasure in one project. I thought about motherhood being unrecognized, uncelebrated and said, I'm going to do something to change that. I too was raised by a very strong, powerful mom who constantly reminded me that she also still had her identity, that she still had her passions, but she also liked taking care of her children and she loved us, but that didn't erase who she was. And that was crucial. So I always had this appreciation of motherhood. She also reminded me in every country where we live, my mom is a lawyer and she fought for women and children's rights all over the world, as well as in the United States, reminded me that the better women and mothers are doing in societies, the better that society will do overall. This was constantly something she said and professed not only in her own work, but she would remind her children of that, the need to value motherhood and to value women. So I was going to talk about mothers in this project, and I decided on the sons of the civil rights movement because it's so often spoken about from the perspective of male leadership. It's a lot easier for people to think of Black male leaders than anybody else when we think about the civil rights movement. And for a moment in history that is so important, not only to us right now, but to for years to come, we're going to be referring to the civil rights movement. We need to switch the narrative. It wasn't just men that were involved in this. And if we're going to focus on men, we also need to focus on their background and who raised them and how they became who they were and how they changed the world with those lessons. So that's how I chose these three women. And I'm really honored to be the person introducing them to the world. Well, Anna, it's extraordinary. And I think we live in a world where there are two things that matter for everybody right now. And number one, of course, is health and safety in the Mm -hmm. context of a pandemic. And the other is gender and racial and social injustice and the need to understand. And, you know, one of the ways we can solve a problem is understanding the root cause Mm -hmm. uh, of that problem and understanding solutions. And, you know, the role of mom in all of this, if you talk about unsung heroes, Mm -hmm. mothers are usually the unsung heroes. I agree with you. And that's unfortunate because I look at my own family And I can tell you that more of the personality and the je ne sais quoi, if you will, of my children comes more from mom than from me. I I say mom, I mean from my wife and my partner. Even if you have two working spouses or partners and both of you are away, I still think the time you're there, you're going to have more influence coming from mom than people give credit for I love the way you already recognize the women in your life and the role that they're having around your children, as well as on your own perspective and your ability to do your work. I think it's just crucial for us to have this understanding and for it to no longer be seen as this kind of second class citizenship where we're supposed to, as mothers, take care of everything. And we're not going to be celebrated for that. We're not going to be given credit for that. But we're also going to be blamed if something goes wrong. I think one of the reasons this happens, though, that such a burden is put on mothers is that there's a socializing factor where we say to women, you are the caretakers. We're teaching you how to take care of other people, how to be cognizant of those around you. Men are taught something very different in Western society. It's much more individual. You're on your own path. You do your own thing. You're the powerful one. You're the strong one. If you're not given the thing that you want, you just keep fighting until you get it. Versus what women are taught from the beginning is 
this is collective. You are the one who is going to make sure other people's needs are met. Now, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but it has created these dynamics where women are caretakers, where we're much more cognizant of those around us. And therefore, there's all this research that shows that if you put the power in women's hands, a lot of issues are going to be solved because we're thinking of something much larger than ourselves. It's the same with children. If our time spent with them, we're thinking about how do I nourish this child? How do I make sure that their dreams can come true? How do I help them on their journey? And unfortunately, men, because of different forms of toxic masculinity, have not been taught the same kind of caretaking identity. And it's not something that I necessarily think women are naturally better at than men are. But I think the unfortunate thing is we've put the burden on women, but we're not giving them any credit and we're not celebrating them and we're not recognizing them. And when we don't recognize them, we also then don't give them the resources that they deserve. We don't give them the protections they deserve. In the United States, the fact that parental leave is up to companies rather than it being a national dictate on how we respect women and their bodies when they're bringing life into the world. Or the fact right now we see in the pandemic that women of color primarily had to leave the workforce because they were forced to choose between parenting their children and taking care of their children or working. That shouldn't be an issue. There should be nets in place to catch us where we say, it does matter. Your role as a mother matters. We acknowledge that. We're going to support you in that. And also, if you want to work, you're going to support you in that. Or if you want to stay home and be able to breathe, God forbid, we're going to support you in that. So part of recognizing motherhood in this way through this book, like you said, it's also as much of it being a celebration of history and these three women in history. It's thinking about where we are currently and our conversations around gender, around gender roles and how we really recenter things to support all of us so we can do our part in society. Anna, how much of that thinking, and by the way, just listening to you as you articulated that position, hats off because you certainly understand the challenge. I said something earlier about the root cause. You certainly understand the root cause because I don't know if it's that mothers have a different gene in terms of caregiving. I don't know if that's true or not. I grew up again in an environment where I had two sisters. I was the only son. I was in touch with things that maybe were unusual in terms of my just acknowledgement, whether it was how I interacted with my own nieces and nephews because my sisters were married younger. And so I was an uncle when I was nine years old, literally. And I wanted to bring my first nephew to school for show and tell. I was in the fourth grade and I went to school and I said to everybody, well, I'm an uncle and you're not. I mean, I was, you know, as far as I knew, I was the youngest uncle in town. And (laughs) so I got in touch with taking care of my nieces and nephews and understanding it. So I'm not sure that I'm any better or worse at it than my sisters or my wife or my daughter But society tells us that that's more mom's job. And again, wrong. And and we shouldn't be ascribing responsibilities like that across the world. It's It's not our place to do that. But I guess society has reinforced that. Yeah. And if there is a genetic difference, societal reinforcement just probably makes that even more so. But I don't think it's I don't think it's genetic. I think it's society. 
I completely agree. And we see that even with parental leave. If we can allow in heteronormative relationships, men to have time with their children, they feel more bonded. There are certain chemicals that go off in their brain where they say, this is my child. I protect this child. I'm part of this family unit. If we don't respect the time that a family should have together, and we also are saying first, Moms, you're not going to have that much time. You'll maybe have a couple of weeks. And if you're lucky, a couple months, that's how bad it is in the US. And then you're going to have to go back to work. Or if you're a stay-at-home mom, we're going to disrespect the role that you play. And we're not going to call it work, even though it is crucial work that you're doing day in and day out. And we also then say, again, I'm speaking in a very heteronormative sense here. We also say to the father, you're not going to have time off at all. Because you're not the caretaker, you're not going to have any role to play in this child's life. Despite the fact that you'll be given credit more so than that mother is, we're not going to give you time to be there and bond with your newborn. And of course, there's obviously this scientific difference in the sense that I carried my child. And of course, my body probably started to adjust to taking care of this child sooner than my husband did because I'm pregnant and I'm feeling those emotions sooner. But I can even say in my personal experience, and this is backed by research, that if your partner has the time given to them, the support that families deserve, they will start to become nurturers. So that's why I fully believe that it can't just be women are better caretakers than men are, but more so as a society, we need to come together around thinking of parenthood, our primary caretakers of our children and how we support them, how we give them credit, how we give them protections. And there's so much that we can do, whether that's again, universal basic income, thinking of having a baseline where people can be appreciated and have dignity with whatever work they're performing. There's so much caretaking work that's happening that's not being given any compensation. I think that's crucial if we think about universal child care and the fact that in many Scandinavian countries, for instance, first parents are given parental leave and maybe up to two years even of paid parental leave. And then it's time for your child to go to preschool and everybody enters preschool at the same time versus in the US, it's up to each family to fend for themselves and We wonder how inequities continue to be reproduced. It's happening from the very beginning stages of life. So, Anna, let me ask you a question. Sociologically, the pandemic has produced many things. But one was for sure, if a family traditionally had the mom, you know, the idea that some schools are now not referring to the people at home as mom and dad, but not even as parents, but as caregivers or, you know, different words because roles have changed and not every traditional family is a mom and a dad, as we well know. And, you know, respect for that is important. And what you say and what you call people matters Mm -hmm. because it actually creates a title and it creates an expectation. Oh, you're the mom, you're the dad. Well, no, we're the parents or we're the caregivers or what the right word is. But that's a separate conversation. But the pandemic has certainly created, and again, I'm doing this from what I will characterize as, you know, family research. I've watched it with my own kids and grandkids. My two sons and my son-in-law have spent in this year way more time than I ever had the luxury of spending with my kids in a formative time. And I'm wondering about the sociological impact of that. I'm just curious, is this a lasting effect or are we going to just snap back to the way it was pre-pandemic? It's interesting because it would definitely take some study to see how 
men, again, in these situations reacted to the extra time that they might have had with their children. Because there's actually a lot of studies show that the first moments of life of bonding are some of the most important. Not to say that they can't be made up for, but that's really crucial for men to feel involved in heteronormative relationships that have children, um, to see this child from the very beginning and feel like they know them. Without that initial exposure, it's sometimes very difficult. A lot of men feel like they're just not meant to be part of it. You know, they allow their wife to take care of everything because she understands the child better. So they don't really try to intervene or they think, okay, you change the diaper, you take care of the child because this kid and I aren't, we're not connected. I, I don't bond with this child. So those initial moments are very crucial. Um, so for many of us who had newborns, you know, my son was five months old when the pandemic started. We had this privilege for those of us that had jobs where we worked from home. A lot of privilege went into this. But same with my husband, he had more time than he would have with our son. And I think because of that, has a much stronger relationship with him that I think he would have really had otherwise and would have been traveling all over the place. And that would have been really difficult to have that bond. Even in his first couple of months, if Michael left for a couple of weeks, or sorry, not weeks, a couple of days in that child's life. It's a couple of weeks. It feels like a very long time. And he would come back and have to kind of start over with his relationship. So it has to do also with the age of your children. But unfortunately, what we saw a lot in the pandemic was that men, even if they were working from home, if both parents were working from home, still felt that it was the mother's job to take care of the child. So you have this situation where children are now uh, going to school from home. Both parents are home for this. Those of us that all worked remotely. And unfortunately, we still saw the reproduction of gender roles. Most men didn't take this as an opportunity to say, okay, let me bond more with my child. So we saw the pictures, you know, there were headlines about moms who are on work calls holding their baby and walking around while the dad is just, you know, sitting at their desk as if like their work was more important to do um, than the mother's work was, or that it was her burden to carry that she needed to figure out how she was going to balance the two. And so while I would hope that there would be more of a positive change and maybe more so for those who had younger kids who maybe were newborns. And so those chemicals were starting to react in a different way that maybe won't, unfortunately, I don't see that changing so much of the dynamic of a system that continues to tell women, this is on your shoulders you're going to have to make the choice. And we saw this with women leaving the workforce in record, awful, tragic numbers, and mostly women of color. There was not support in place for them, whether they were married or not. They were the ones that had to make the choice. Very few men had to leave their job. It was women. And um, whether or not they were working from home, et cetera, they were the ones who felt the burden of, I need to take care of my child and I'm not being given an option. Anna, I can't tell you how moved I am by listening to you. It's hard not to be. You're obviously extraordinarily accomplished, both as an author, as an advocate, and as an educator. I want to let our audience in on a little secret that I can brag about on your behalf <laughs> as being a Gates scholar and one of the most uh, arguably competitive and prestigious scholarships in the world at the University of Cambridge. I mean, what haven't you done? Hey, <laughs> I mean, my God, I, I, I feel small in terms of accomplishments, number one. And number two, I guess the question is, I want to make sure all of our uh, listeners get a chance to, to read the most recent book. But what's next for you? 
Thank you. That means the world. It really does. I appreciate it. You know, I think based off of my experiences of living abroad so much and really interacting with so many different people and having what we talked about at the beginning, this appreciation of difference and comfort with difference and love and celebration of difference paired with the fact that I've studied these things, whether it was anthropology in undergrad, my master's in gender studies, my PhD in sociology, it's all for me been about furthering my understanding of the world and of difference and really bringing more people together and comfort around that. I think in the States, we've seen such discomfort and fear of difference. And that has been further propelled by several others who want people to be afraid of each other. It benefits them. It doesn't benefit the collective. And I want to be a voice who speaks up against that and says, the more we can see each other, the more we can understand difference, the more we can be okay with saying, yes, some really terrible things have happened to certain groups in our country. And we need to heal from that. We need to be transparent about that. We need to be honest about that so we can move forward and continue to bring strength to each other. I want to do that as much as possible, whether that's writing more books. I write fiction and nonfiction. So my next project is a novel um, or, you know, continuing to get the word out about this book, The Three Mothers, and putting that in a medium, whether that's through a doc series or a film um, or even a TV show where I get to interview more moms of famous people. And we really better appreciate this role because it's not only saying, again, I see you. Um, it's cool to know these stories. It's a transformation that happens in our head where we start to value roles in a different way. And we start to think about policy really differently. Um, I think the more you can pair human stories with data and numbers and kind of make them work together, the more and more people are driven to make change and say, oh, I understand now why somebody might say that universal preschool is a good idea, you know, without an understanding of human connection or stories or differences and different cultures and different levels of access to resources and privileges, you feel really, it's easy for people to say, I did fine. I was fine during the pandemic. This was great for me versus saying, there's a lot happening around the world. We need to open our eyes to this. So let's center maybe not your story of the privileged few of us, but let's think about those who didn't have this access. Why weren't there policies again in place to help us all? Because these issues are interconnected. Even when we think about the economy, it's not good for any of us that women have left the workforce in record numbers. We know that teams do better businesses do better, companies do better, the more diverse they are, the more they have different genders represented, different races represented, different class experiences represented. We're just more innovative. We're able to speak to larger groups of people. We can sustain our ideas. And so we have to continue to recognize that interconnectedness. I am keenly aware of it. And I'll use my work as much as I possibly can to make more people aware and comfortable and excited about difference. Well... Anna, you've certainly done all of those for me on this call, and your passion is contagious. Thank and, you. And I want to thank you truly for taking the time today and for sharing, as I said, your passion, your insights, your experience. I feel honored and blessed and thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The honor and the pleasure is mine. I'm so grateful. And thank you for the opportunity to share my story with more people. I'm Michael Kasson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. 
Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Jessica Kreinchich. 